Well, hello, everybody. There is a perennial New York Times bestseller book. Uh, even USA Today called it uh, one of its 25 most influential books of the past 25 years, and it's a book called What to Expect When You're Expecting. I'm sure Lois, who just read us the scripture right now, has read it. Um, it's been said that it's been read by 90% of women who read a pregnancy book. It's even known as the pregnancy Bible. What to expect when you're expecting. This may be the cheesiest sermon title I've ever had in my life, but I always try and break my own records. Here's what it is. What to expect when you're professing. See, here's what's going on. The Bible Bible tells us what to expect when we're sharing Jesus, when we share Jesus with others, what we should expect. Now, just to get us caught up to speed, in Acts chapter 2, we saw thousands of people come to Christ and the beauty of Christian community being developed. In chapter 3, we saw the healing power of the Holy Spirit and how Jesus can heal broken souls. And now in chapter 4, we're seeing for the first time the church start to face opposition. Our text outlines a number of things we should expect when we tell others about Jesus. I'll give you the three that I see in the text, and then we'll work our way through. Here they are. First, expect opposition to the work. Expect opposition to the work. Second, expect the Word to work. And third, expect the Holy Spirit to work. So why don't we pray to that end and then we'll, we'll dive in. Jesus, that's precisely what I ask. I ask that you would show us what to expect as we go about following you and sharing you. God, I thank you for the rich example the, that the Apostle Peter is in this text. I thank you that we have it, that we can study it, that we can understand it and apply it. Lord, I pray that you would press it into our lives in such a way that we manifest these truths in our lives. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at this first one, okay? Expect opposition to the work. Let me just read a few verses for you again, starting in verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So what happened uh, last week we saw in, in the text at the end of chapter 3 was that Peter and John, the apostles, are making their way to the temple for prayers, and they come across a paralyzed man who's never walked in his life. And he asks them for money, and Peter says, I do not have money, but he says, I have something that can help you, and he heals him in Jesus' name. This man gets up, it says, goes with them into the temple courts, and it says that he's walking, he's leaping, and he's praising God. This is creating quite a stir, right? Because people would have recognized, anybody who was at the temple at that point would have just walked by at some point that day, this very man. They would have recognized him from other days and other years, and now he's dancing around praising God, and he's got these two apostles of Jesus by his side. So this, this is quite the scene. And so um, we, ha we see a group of people come up to them, greatly annoyed at them. 
One, one of the, one of the uh, groups of people we see are the priests, verse 1. These were the superintendents of the temple. They were Levites from the tribe of Levi who were giving their annual service in the temple, the priests. With them was also the captain of the temple, essentially the temple police chief. He was in charge of keeping the peace, but he was also uh, the second in rank to the high priest. And also with them are the Sadducees. Now, just to to explain this a little bit, there's this group called the Pharisees, and they opposed Jesus in Jesus' ministry for religious reasons. As misguided as those reasons were, the Pharisees opposed Jesus for religious reasons. The Sadducees, though, the Sadducees opposed Jesus for political reasons. Let me tell you a couple important things about the Sadducees. First, they were the wealthy aristocratic class. They collaborated with the Romans for the benefit of their own personal comfort, power, and prestige. And so they wanted things to stay the same because they were in a very good position. That's something you should know about the Sadducees. Something else you should know about the Sadducees were they, they were the materialistic rationalists of their day. Materialistic rationalists of their day. They denied the supernatural. They denied the existence of evil spirits and of angels. Most of all, and most pertinent to our text today, they denied the resurrection. Not just the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of anybody. That there would be a resurrection of the dead, resurrection of the body. So the reasons the Sadducees are annoyed, this word means disturbed, provoked, or angry, are because, one, these apostles are jeopardizing the good thing they've got set up with the Romans. Right? There's this huge scene going on at the temple, and they want to quash it. But second, probably most primarily, in preaching the gospel, the apostles are affirming the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of resurrection from the dead for all who believe in Jesus' name. So they arrest them and throw them into jail for the night. That's the scene. That's the scenario. So I just want to talk about this for a little bit. One of the things that puzzled historians for years is why and how Christianity spread so fast in its earliest days. The the group that Jesus left behind was relatively small. We saw that in Acts 1. And they weren't very influential people. They were were Galileans. They, they, They were just working class, good working class folks, but no education, no wealth, Christianity, additionally, didn't advance through conquest. So, so, so how did it grow? It wasn't by the sword. For the first 400 years, no one really ever picked up a sword in defense of Christianity. And like I alluded to, it didn't make its followers rich. So how did it grow so fast? It didn't make its followers rich. In fact, it usually led them to losing their homes, losing their fortunes, and yet at the same time, it produced communities unlike any the world had ever seen before. For example, they welcomed the outcast. They had the Christian community, the Christian church, had the first multi-ethnic communities on the planet. They taught that all people were of equal worth in the eyes of God, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, masters and servants, men and women. They embraced the foreigner because they saw themselves as sojourners in a foreign land. So they were this unique community that welcomed the outcast. They were also exceedingly generous. 
Writing to one of his pagan priests, Emperor Julian in the fourth century said, he wrote this in a letter, it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, that's the Christians that he looked down on, it is disgraceful that they support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us, and they get aid from these Christians. See, paganism had produced no charity or any compulsion to offer it, but Christianity did. So they welcomed the outcast. They were exceedingly generous, and they were peaceable. Look, there were lots of persecuted religious groups in those days, but only Christians refused to fight back, praying even for the forgiveness of their captors and going, going joyfully to their executions. We see this in the Bible and we see this in church history. If you were to flip your Bible to Acts chapter 7, there's a, a man named Stephen. And as Stephen was being stoned to death by an angry mob, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice and said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, ironically, a man named Saul was holding the coats for the men who stoned Stephen. Later, Saul would have a vision of Jesus. We're going to see it probably two years from now when we get there in our series on Acts. Saul has a vision of Jesus. Jesus meets him. Saul becomes Paul. He becomes the greatest missionary the world had ever seen. Paul, at one point, is forced to defend himself before his opponents. Follower of Jesus, missionary for Jesus, church planter for Jesus. At one point, forced to defend himself and his cause before his opponents. But in chooses, instead of kind of magnifying himself, he glories in his weaknesses. And we see in 2 Corinthians 11, him begin to list the kinds of opposition he experienced because he proclaimed the gospel. Listen to it. With far greater labors... Speaking of his labors were harder than the labors of these others accusing him. Far more imprisonments. With countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. It was expected that 40 lashes would kill a man. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Take that, Tom Hanks. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many and sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Goes on a few verses later to say, if I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. But talk about a list, eh? Should we expect no opposition? Paul would tell us no. I mean, this, 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 this theme, though, traces through all of church history. I'm, I'm skipping uh, centuries here, but let's go to 1536 when William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake. Why? For translating the scriptures into English for the common people. His final words were, Lord, Open the king of England's eyes. 
that he might see you. I want to show you a couple pictures, put it on the screen for you. These are recent pictures of a church in Aleppo, Aleppo, Syria. Kind of one from behind and one from the front. This is a church caught between government, the government and extremist groups in this war-torn country. Christians right now are experiencing discrimination and violence for their faith, and yet they worship anyway. It's a church that's been absolutely pummeled, and they just don't use that section. <laughs> but they still gather and they still worship. Look, the Bible confronts us with the reality that we should expect opposition like all of these. Strange though, isn't it? I mean, we have an embarrassment of riches. No stonings, no burnings at the stake, no church bombings. We do experience opposition, but it's a far more subtle one. But it is no less real. It's the fear that keeps us from sharing Jesus with others because we're worried they might think we're weirdos <laughs> or we'll be rejected. We won't be liked, we won't be accepted, or they'll, they'll peg us as fanatics. A few years ago, a young woman um, moved into our, uh, our basement suite at our house. She, she know, she's moved out of town now, but at the time she, she came and checked it out and I, I was showing her the place and then she moved in. And I had a number of conversations with her and, and on a regular occasion, I would just feel this impulse to, to ask her if she had a faith or to tell her that I was a pastor. It's an easy way to start talking about Jesus with people. What do you do? All that kind of stuff. But it, it never came up and I kept thinking, oh, I should, I should bring this up somehow. I wonder if she's a Christian and she's looking for a church, I should tell her about that. Or I wonder what she thinks of faith. And I, I, on numerous occasions, I just, I just never quite brought myself to open up that conversation. And then, a few weeks later, after she had moved in, I was standing on this stage, and in the back row, I looked, and my tenant was there. <laughs> she came to church. And after I went and I talked to her, excited that she was here and a little bit ashamed, to be honest. And she said, oh yeah, before I moved in, I like looked you guys up to see if there was anything about you, <laughs> any red flags. And I saw you were a pastor and I checked it out and it kind of reminded me of my church back home. So I'm excited to be here. Every time I've read about Peter denying Jesus three times, part of that being to a young girl, <laughs> I no longer feel above it. <laughs> I no longer feel like I, I'm above that. There was no threat to me even. Like, what is that? It's probably just me, but what is that? You ever experiencing, experience anything like that? What, what is it that makes us doubt ourselves, doubt second guess, get nervous, even scared about sharing our faith with others? What is that? I think in those moments, one of a few things is going on. One of them might be a fear of man that is greater than our fear of God. Simply put, fear of man means we care more about what others think than what God thinks. Another is that for some of us, we, we don't actually think Jesus is really the only way, and so it doesn't really matter all that much. 
hell either doesn't exist or there are many paths that lead to God, and, and any of that thinking leads us to be like, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's not that important to tell this individual about Jesus. By the way, we're going to spend all of our time next week talking about the exclusivity of Christ, Jesus being the only way of salvation. I think a third reason is that actually a spiritual battle is going on. When we get nervous, when, 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 we, when we, we bite our tongue, we don't, we don't, we don't speak up, we don't share Jesus, the, the reality is there's a spiritual battle going on. Ephesians 6 put it, puts it this way, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to withstand, may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The apostle Paul is describing in this text the Christian life as one of spiritual warfare. The Christian life is many things and a battle is one of them. Do you recognize that? The call for us today is to rely on Christ's resources. The text I just read to you starts by saying, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We're going to talk about that more in the second and third point here. Here's a reminder that we all need as Christians. It's not actually a losing battle. Is there a spiritual battle going on? Yes. Is it a losing battle? Is it even possible that it could be a losing battle? The answer is also no. It's not a battle between good and evil that we sure hope good conquers in. The reality, Christian, is Jesus conquered sin and death and the grave already. The battle has been won. The resources you need have been availed to you. So here's where we've gotten so far with our time. Will you face opposition? Yes. But also, will you be conquered? No. So, sorry, Rob Bell, love wins doesn't quite cut it. Jesus wins, and if you're in Christ, his victory becomes your victory too. I want to encourage you on this a little bit more, really quick. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I've got a question for you. Are gates offensive weapons or last defensive measures? This text, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against what? The gospel. Jesus, the church pressing forward in the midst of the battle. You know what hell's got? Gates. Like that's a last defensive measure. We are not on the defensive Jesus has conquered sin and death, the grave. One more really quick. Jesus promises two things in this text, opposition and ultimate safety. Luke 21 says this, Then he said to them, 
Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, exactly what Peter and John are experiencing in our text. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Down to verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. But your endurance, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. What Jesus is saying is by enduring, by patiently persevering, followers of Jesus will experience no eternal spiritual harm only eternal salvation. Will there be difficulty? Will there be opposition? Yes. Can they ultimately harm you? No. As Jim Elliott, the missionary who died at the age of 28 when he was speared to death trying to bring the gospel to an unreached people group, as Jim Elliott famously wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So what have we learned so far? There will be opposition to gospel work. We should be aware of that. We should even expect it, but not be debilitated by it. That opposition shouldn't stop us because it cannot ultimately harm us. I came across a question a week or two ago that's just been ruminating every day since, multiple times a day. Here's the question. What did I do today that'll matter a million years from now? So I I want to pose that to you. What did you do this week that will matter a million years from now? My brother and my sister in Christ, let's look ahead to this next week. What are you going to do this week that will matter a million years from now. Are there moments where we're scared? Yes. Will there be opposition to the work of the gospel? Yes. But are we safe in Jesus' hands? And what is it that our lives are meant to do that will matter a million years from now? It's not not share the gospel because there's opposition. It's just to recognize there will be opposition, but to share Jesus anyways, which leads me to the second point. Expect the word to work. Look at verse 4. But, by, but many of those who had heard the word, there's this big crowd, there's this healed man who's walking and leaping and praising God. And then Peter's proclaiming the gospel to them. He's he's shared the same message like three times in four chapters in Acts so far. This is like his go-to sermon. You know those guys who do the circuit who've got like three sermons and they're amazing sermons and they're always preaching those same sermons? I envy those guys. They they, They find that sweet, sweet sermon and they just, they share it everywhere. Peter's already got one, and it's like, you killed Jesus, but God raised Jesus, and you need to trust Jesus. Like, that's his sermon. He says it again, and then verse 4, it says, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Expect 
the word to work. Despite opposition, this is the third time Luke has mentioned the church's specific size. Acts 2 mentions that people were being saved and added to the church daily. And so at this point, the size of the church is 5,000 men, but which is actually probably likely around 10,000 men, women, and children. The Word of God was certainly changing lives. And that's what the Word of God does. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, it says, and we also thank God constantly for this. This is Paul writing the church in Thessalonica. We also thank God constantly for this. What? That when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Okay, here's where we're at. What to expect? Opposition. But also, expect the Word to work. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the word of cross, the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. The word of God is the power of God for those who are being saved. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Look, that's why we sing the word. That's why we pray the word. That's why we preach and minister the word at church and seek to share it everywhere we can. It's one of my favorite stories. It's about a, a man named Luke Short. Mr. Short was sitting under a hedge in Virginia when he happened to remember a sermon he had once heard preached by the famous Puritan John Flavel. As he recalled the sermon, he asked God to forgive his sins right then and there through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Short lived for three more years, and when he died, the following words were inscribed on his tombstone. Here lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged 106. Now, now check this. The sermon that old Mr. Short remembered had been preached 85 years earlier back in England, nearly a century passed between Flavel's sermon and Short's conversion, between the sowing and the reaping. And yet, let me tell you this, sooner or later, by the grace of God, faithful word ministry works. Look, do you know what fueled the Apostle Paul's ministry? It was the understanding given to him by Jesus that the word of God will always do its work. I want to read to you from Acts 18. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And then it goes on to say, and so he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. A couple hugely important things to draw out of this text. Here's the first. Jesus had many in the city who were his, meaning many who would come to faith in Jesus. And you want to know what? Anywhere there's people, there are people who are his, and we are to go to them and proclaim Jesus. The second thing that's interesting is Jesus tells Paul, there are people who are mine that are going to come to saving faith in this city. And Paul doesn't go, oh, great, that's taken care of, and leave. What does he do? He presses in, goes into the city, stays there for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Why? Because Jesus had those who were his there. There were those who, by the ministry of the word, would become the people of God. 
See, at the heart of evangelism and church planting and discipleship and ministry in general is teaching the Word and letting it do its work. Years ago, a new, a new couple joined my life group, and um, the man was sharing in our living room that evening a little bit about his story. And he explained that he had grown up going to a conservative church in town, but he'd never clearly heard and embraced the gospel. He told me that he had heard the gospel in one of my sermons a few weeks prior and given his life to Jesus. I've thought about that so often. I I have this handful of stories like that one that encourage me to persevere during COVID. (laughs) That, that, That encourage me to persevere and be like, let's preach to the 30, let's preach to the 90, let's preach to the 50, let's preach and put it online. That just help, encourage me to persevere in preaching the word and reminding me to have the faith that the word will do its work. Our text today is another reminder to all of us to keep sharing the gospel, keep giving ourselves to the word of God and trust that it will lead people to salvation and grow disciples into Christ-likeness. We're gonna just hit this third one really quick. Expect the Holy Spirit to work. Let's pick it up in verse eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Okay, here's what's going on. Peter's like, are we seriously being put on trial for healing a guy? What's happening? You're putting us on trial because we healed a man? Then he goes on to say, but if you're asking, I think you're asking how, to answer your question, he was healed in the name of Jesus, the one you crucified, that God raised and in whom there is life in his name. Peter is filled with the Spirit, the text tells us, and therefore he proclaims that salvation is found in the Son of God. And what's happening is the promise of Jesus was being fulfilled in that moment. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said to his disciples, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Peter receives a special inspiration from the Holy Spirit in this moment in Acts chapter 4. That Jesus promised that enables him to reply effectively in court and under pressure. His companionship with Jesus had transformed him. He was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. His Savior was saturating his emotions, compelling his will, energizing his body, so much so that the Sanhedrin wasn't just seeing Peter, they were seeing Jesus. There's a poem that's been attributed to John Bunyan. John Bunyan was, the, was a pastor and, and wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And the poem goes like this, run, John, and work the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The point here is that with the new covenant that Jesus established and the sending of the Holy Spirit who indwells all its members, we not only know what to do, 
We also have been given his power and his strength to do it. When we go about his mission, we are given his power, his courage, his wisdom, and his message of saving grace. Luke 21, picking it up again, it says, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesakes. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Just to put this all in context, Peter was standing with John They were standing before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would have stood in the semicircle, and then behind them, another semicircle, behind them, another semicircle, until they were all there. These two men are placed before them. Peter was speaking to an audience, just envision this in your mind, of the wealthiest, most intellectual, and most powerful in the land. Not only that, it was the same group that gave Jesus an unfair trial. And it was this same Peter who denied Jesus during that trial three times out of fear for his life. But now, Peter, the the nothing guy Galilean, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he is able to proclaim Christ before them. Look, if you profess Christ, you can expect opposition. But you can also expect the word to work. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead and transformed Peter's life is the same power dwelling in you as a follower of Jesus. Expect the Holy Spirit to work in and through you for his fame and glory and for the cause of the gospel. What can you expect when you're professing? Expect opposition to the work but also expect the word to work and expect the Holy Spirit to work. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for these rich promises. (laughs) I I thank you too for just the honesty of Scripture. There, there, There is no getting around the fact that you do not promise ease, but you do promise to be with us and that your promises are sure and that you will give us the courage and the hope and the strength and the power that we need to proclaim you. And you have already given us all the promises that are coming to us that can never be snatched. And therefore, we are safe when we rest in you. Jesus, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the cross. I thank you that you paid the penalty for our sin there. I thank you that you rose in our hope is in that too. Jesus, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and embolden us to proclaim you to the ends of the earth for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.